Hello, everybody. I almost said, what's up, party people, because my new favorite show is Bluey. Any parents in the audience that watch Bluey with their kids? It's like all my kids at school are like, Mr. Banks, have you watched the new Iron Man or like whatever shows, WandaVision? I'm like, no, but did you see the new episode of Bluey? Because it was like, they taught lessons about manners and it was lit, guys. It was so sweet. But <laughs> I'm obviously so excited to be here. Obviously, I'm very thankful Luke gives me opportunities to come up here and speak with you guys because one of the things I want to talk about is something that God laid in my heart like probably, I guess, a month and a half ago at this point. I was driving home from work, beating myself up about making mistakes as I usually do, you know? It's like, oh, you're so stupid. Why'd you say that? Why'd you do that? Why'd you lose your temper? Gosh, like, Mitchell, when are you gonna get better? Like, you know, just doing that whole, my drive is like 40 minutes long. So it's a good process of like beating myself up, realizing I'm okay, and like then piping like self up before I get home. So it's great, it works out. Um, but what happened was, is while I was going through that process that I've gone through numerous times, I started wondering about like, God kind of placed in my heart like, Where's this balance between giving ourselves grace, but then also expecting ourselves to do better? Because then I'm like, if we're covered by grace, theoretically, like, that's it, right? Like, we're good. Like, I don't really have to stress out about the fact that I make mistakes because, like, I'm covered by grace. So that's fine, right? But then we also have this idea of, like, conviction for things that we've done wrong. So why do we have this, like, this duality of like, I feel bad for what I've done, but at the same time, Christ has paid the cost for all my sins. So I, I, I've been pondering that over the past month and a half, and I've been like asking friends about their opinions and what they think, and obviously seeking the word and through prayer and just exercise. Like, and, I, and I found an illustration from my past that I think that shows what grace is supposed to look like. So when I was 19, um, my dad really wanted me to go to college because I'm like the only person in my immediate family to go to college. And I told him, I don't want to, and you can't make me. So there. So <laughs> I wanted to go to Australia because I wanted to go to Australia. But also, I wanted to go to Australia because YWAM, Youth with a Mission, had a discipleship training school. And so you would spend like three months in class learning about like how to be a disciple, how to minister to people. And then you'd spend another three or four months doing missions work. And I was like, I think that's really good for me. I want to do that. And my dad was like, as long as you promise to go to college when you get home. And I was like, fine, I'll do that. So I went to Australia. Uh, it was amazing. If anyone in here is like, I mean, you can go at any age, but any young people, if you're just like looking to take a gap year, I totally recommend go do a DTS somewhere. It's awesome. Um, but we would go to school and we'd learn and then we'd get to go do missions work. And at the time, Australia allowed you to talk about religion in school. So we actually got to go to like middle schools and high schools and do this thing called RS, religious studies. And we could go into schools and talk to kids about God and not be arrested. It was amazing. It was so cool. Um, I don't think they do it anymore in all fairness, but it was so interesting that that was their culture at the time. So between doing all that stuff, one of the things we like to do in our free time was to play the great Australian sport of rugby. We would go down to the beach, we'd play rugby all afternoon, and I didn't realize until I got to Australia, there's like seven different types of rugby. Because you know, as American, when we think rugby, we think like dudes covered in mud and blood and like short shorts with a soccer jersey on and like four teeth, right? And they like run down the field and like punch each other in the face and like headbutt people for points and stuff. Like that's what I thought rugby was. 
And in all fairness, that is one type of rugby. It's called rugby union, the stereotypical rugby we think of. But in Australia, they have another type, and they call it Australian rules or rugby league. And it's actually really similar to American football. Like, there's a line of scrimmage. You run down to the end zone. Uh, They have uprights. They're very different from ours, but they have uprights that you can kick to for points. The only, the, the, the main difference is like there's no forward passing, everything is lateral. Um, you know, there's tackling, but you can't tackle a certain way. So as an American, I was like, okay, like I'm confident enough to like, I can, I can hop in and I'll play. And, and they'll explain the basic rules, but it's just like any game. Like if I had to sit down with you at a table and explain every rule of Monopoly under every circumstance, it would take four and a half days to explain the rules before we ever got playing, right? So just like with rugby, they were like, okay, well, like, here's the basic rules, and then you'll kind of learn as you play. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So you've got like a bunch of Australians who grew up playing the game, and then you've got like Americans, Canadians, Germans, South Koreans, Japanese, South Africans, um, Nigerians, like all just kind of thrown into the mix. And we're just out there doing our best. Like <laughs> multiple times, obviously, we forgot the rules. But instead of just like stopping the game and saying like, Mitchell, you can't, you can't do that. You can't bite people, stop biting people. Like, you can't headbutt people to get the ball. He's not even playing, he's just hanging out on the sidelines. So rather than like stop the game completely, what they would do is like, for example, I remember one time I made a pass that was forward. Rather than stop the game, the guy that caught the ball just yelled out, Grace. And I was like, what the heck is going on? And then one time I pushed somebody from behind, which is, you know, you're not supposed to do that apparently. I was just trying to get them down. And they just yelled, the guy who fell is sliding across the grass going, Grace! So anytime we would break a rule, anytime the foreigners would break a rule, the Australian guys would just yell out, Grace! And I was like, what the heck is going on? So on the walk home, because we would just walk home from the beach, I was asking them, like, why do you guys keep yelling Grace? And he goes, oh, you guys keep breaking rules. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. And he goes, yeah, we know. That's why we just yell out Grace. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, so like earlier you made a pass. You can only make lateral passes or backwards passes. You can't pass forward. I was like, oh, well, why didn't you say anything? He's like, I just did. He's like, now you know for next time. And I was like, that's so cool. Because I thought about like, at the time, if I would have made that pass and they were like, stop, stop. Any of my close friends know, I'm pretty sensitive. Um, And so if they would have been like, stop, you can't do that. I would have been like, I didn't know, whatever. I'm going home. I don't want to play anymore anyway. So, and it's just like with anything, like I'm a foreigner to the country. I've never played the game before. If they would have treated me that way, I never would have come back and played rugby. Like I would have just been like, nope, not going to face embarrassment. Definitely not going to be embarrassed. Mm -mm, Never again in my life. No way. So it illustrated to me that like grace should just be given freely. We should give grace freely to others just as they gave grace to us. And so just as they gave us grace, it wasn't as though we constantly just like messed up over and over and over again. There was a growth in that grace. Like the next time we came out, I can't go like, I can't keep forward passing and going, I didn't know. They're like, yeah, you know, Mitchell, we told you like five times ago. You know, there was a growth with the grace. It wasn't just a, oh, poor baby don't know any better. Poor stupid American does not know what he's doing. Just let him play. No, there was still a growth in that grace. And I think that's where we start getting into the duality of what grace means for us. There is an abundant grace for us. And it's given freely without any sort of shame or guilt 
But at the same time, there's conviction knit in with it that allows us to recognize our faults and grow from it. So, moving on from rugby, um, as I was asking some friends about this process, and you guys, you can put the graphic up on the, the board whenever you get it. I was asking a friend about like, this whole idea of like grace versus um, conviction and all that and what that means to him. And he introduced me to this graphic, which is like a, a graphic they use to like analyze leadership of companies. And I was like, oh, dude, this is exactly what I'm thinking about. So if we've got four quadrants, and the further you go to the right, I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys right, me left, okay, yeah. The further you go right, the higher the challenge is in the workspace. And then the further up you go, the higher the support there is in a workspace. So let's start in this bottom left-hand corner where it says abdicator. This is the kind of job like you show up, you clock in, you do your job, you clock out, you go home. There's like, you do not care about this job. Your boss doesn't care about you. Your boss probably doesn't care about this job. This is just like, tick in the box, I am technically employed, I am getting money, end of story. Then, as we move right over into the dominator, the high challenge area, this is the job you show up to, the boss is riding you, every five seconds. He's a micromanager. You have to stay late, short notice. You work on weekends because you were told to and you're too afraid to say no. This is a job where your, your boss is a tyrant. Like there is no support there. There's no conversation between each other. There is like, I said so, you better do it or else. Then let's back up. Let's go to the high support, low challenge. This is the, the protector. This is, hey buddy, I'm your best friend. Like, let's hang out. Oh, you showed up late? That's fine. Don't, don't worry about it. People show up late. Things happen. It's okay. You know, there's no opportunity for growth. Like, he's not going to help you get promoted. But, you know, there, you do nothing wrong. You know, it's okay. But that one time you cross the line and you get in trouble, you're mad. Why are you mad? Because that sort of attitude builds this sense of entitlement. We've never gotten on to me before. We're going to get on to me now. Sally does it every Tuesday. How come I'm getting in trouble for it now? It builds this sense of entitlement to where, like, there is no place to go. And then, if we go all the way up to the top right, that's the liberator. That is a high challenge, high support area, and that is where God lives. God gives us all the support in the world, all the grace in the world that we could possibly need, but at the same time, conviction comes in and says, hey, we got to get better here. It's not guilt. It's not how dare you. It's not shame. It's like, I can't believe you did it again. It is just, hey, take my hand. Let's fix this together. Let's come together. And so we're talking about grace so much. You guys, you can take the graphic down. I appreciate you. Kisses. And as we talk about grace so much, I started thinking about like in our secular culture, we have grace. And like we think of like, or when I say grace, I think of like, you know, we say grace at a meal. I guess that's not secular, but you know what I mean. And then like you have graceful ladies who like dance gracefully. So I wanted to look up like, okay, what is like the definition of grace when it comes to Christian theology? And of course, I'm an English teacher. Like I can't help it. Like it's just who I am. I love definitions. I love words and where they come from. So grace in Christian theology is the spontaneous and unmerited gift of the divine favor and the salvation of sinners and the divine influence operating in individuals for their regeneration and sanctification. So I think we all get the first part. It's, it's spontaneous, unmerited gift. Like, 
Grace is freely given. Grace. You receive grace. Grace. You get some grace, and you get some grace, and you get some grace. Everyone gets grace, right? But then it goes on to explain, like, why do we get grace? And it says it's for our regeneration and sanctification. So regeneration means to, like, regrow, reform, rebirth. Like, when we accept Jesus, we are reborn. And so nothing in this world can separate us from our status of salvation, right? There's nothing we can do. You could kill somebody, you can cheat on your spouse, whatever. None of that is going to take you away from Christ's salvation. However, it does affect your relationship with Christ. And that's what it means by regeneration. We, we receive grace and we also receive conviction, not because God's like, oh no, your salvation's in danger. What he's saying is our relationship is in danger. When you sin and when you when you seek out fleshly pleasures as opposed to my godly treasures I have for you, you're creating this division between us because you're saying what you have for me is not what I want. It's just like with my wife, Brianna. I can do all sorts of things. It will not make me unmarried, but it will certainly have a negative effect on my relationship with her. And our relationship with God is the same way. He wants us to have grace and conviction so that we can have that relationship be regenerated every day we're closer and closer to him. And then it also says it's for our sanctification. And sanctification is just like fancy word for like being more like Christ. That's all it is. Because through that con conviction over and over again, we start to be sanctified. We start to be more and more like Christ. And you're gonna have different convictions throughout your life. I have convictions now at 32 years old that there's no way I would have had at 18 because they would have bounced off my head. Like, I, I just would not have accepted it. Like, no, you know? And so it's not to say that as you get older, you're gonna reach like these different levels. There's, like Christianity is not a hierarchy of like, when you accept God, all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, you're the private in the Christian military now, and you've got to work your way through the ranks. No, it's just like, where is your walk with God? He's going to give you different convictions based off whatever circumstances in life throws at you, right? So I may have different circumstances, or I may have different convictions than Luke, and Luke may have different convictions than me, and that doesn't make him better than me or being better than him. It's just God is trying to work on us in different areas at the same time. It's kind of like when I was talking about with the rugby players earlier, you know, I said they wouldn't stop the game for the Americans or the, or the Germans who are acting goofy. But if one of the Australian players who grew up playing the game made a mistake, we would stop the game because they know better. There's different conviction for them because they've had a different walk with the game. They've had different experience with the game. Therefore, they're not gonna let them just get away with that because they're like, oh, you know better, like, come on. So it's the same thing with our rock with, walk with Christ. Um, I heard a pastor one time say, you, you know, you have like, really young Christians who typically will accept Christ and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna go on a missions trip right now or I'm gonna like start a business or I'm gonna do this and that for missions. Like I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna start saving people. I'm gonna go to Walmart and start laying hands on people and just praying for them. And it's like, he was joking about like, the heart is right, but God doesn't send babies to the battlefield. Like diapers are not good shields for swords and arrows. You know, and it's not that you're like, it's not that you shouldn't have that feeling but God's gonna put you in different areas of your life based on what convictions he has for you. So, we talked a lot about grace and conviction, and so now we have to answer like, well, what do we do with that? And I wanna read the story of the, um, 
It's Matthew 18, 21 through 35. What are they called? The unforgiving debtor. And I won't read it word for word because I think most of us know this story, but I'll paraphrase a little bit. It says, Peter comes to him, meaning Jesus, and he asked him, Lord, how often do I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 77 times. And he doesn't mean like seven times seven and you're like tallying and you're like, they're getting close. Oh boy, I can't wait. Oh, I can't wait. No, what he's saying is like, it's like, it's ridiculous. Like it's the ridiculous amount of grace you're going to be giving people. You're going to pour out grace so often that it's like you're going to lose count. Because again, yeah, you're not going to tally somebody's sins. That's ridiculous. He goes on to say, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decides to bring up his accounts uh, up to date with servants who have borrowed money from him. And in the process, one of his debtors was brought who owed him millions of dollars. And he couldn't pay. And so the king was like, well, we're going to sell your wife and your kid and everything you own in order to pay this debt. But the man fell down and he's begging, he's pleading. He's like, Lord, please, please, king, be patient with me. Be patient with me and I will pay everything. And the master was filled with pity and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he saw another servant who owned him a thousand dollars and he grabs him by the throat and he says, pay what you owe now. And his fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more and he said, be patient with me and I will pay it. But the creditor couldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of our other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that happened and the king called the man and had forgiven and said, you evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his entire debt. That's why my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. This story scares the heck out of me because Jesus is the one saying this. If anyone knows how God's kingdom is going to be run, that scares me. And I don't think that like fear is of God, obviously, but I think the reason it scares me so much is because I start thinking back to like, oh my gosh, how many times have I been embittered towards someone and held on to it like it's like jewelry? Like, it's like I get up every morning, I go brush my teeth, I put my boots on, and I just put on that bitterness and carry it around. And I'm just like, can't believe they did that to me. Can't believe they did that to me. And, and God says exactly what will happen if we cannot choose to forgive our brothers and sisters. So, I had a buddy fly into town and come visit me. Um, and we were good friends for years and years and years and years. And uh, I ended up flying to Georgia, or I'm sorry, ended up moving to Texas to marry my absolutely gorgeous, perfect wife, who is incredible. Oh, oh hey, Bree, are you in here? Okay. And this buddy and I, we had a great relationship for a while, and then things became kind of strained. And, and then at one point, we just, we were no longer friends. I was pretty bitter and hurt, or some things that were done. And he was bitter and hurt over things I had done to him. And it took a long time to realize we're both just looking in the mirror. You know, we're both just as guilty as the other one. And it's just so wonderful to be able to say, hey, I love you. I forgive you. And you know what matters more than, than vengeance or justice? 
is our friendship, is, is being in communion with each other as believers. And so just as a testament to what grace can do to your life, my, my best friend of 15 years was sitting right here this morning, and we're in a better shape than we've ever been. Yeah, thank you, yeah. So, in closing, before I cry up here in front of God and everybody, <laughs> Romans 12, 19. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God, for the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back. Again, man, I, I know that I am such a vengeful person at times. Man, you can ask Bree. One of my biggest struggles is like, I get angry over things because I'm like, that was wrong. Wrong for that to happen. And sometimes it's like my pride, but then sometimes it really is like the situation that happened was definitively, objectively wrong. I was wronged. And so I just get so angry because I'm like, why isn't something done? Why isn't something done? This person deserves this, this, and this for what they've done to me. And, and then over the past month and a half, I've realized it's because it's not our job. It's not our job to dole, to dole out punishment. It's not our job to dole out justice. Righteous, righteousness, ooh, Lord, I'm so, I'm a strain from the path, Lord, forgive me. Um, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We have no hand in it. So. God calls us to be gracious, to be forgiving, so that, so that conviction can fall. And then through that conviction of the Holy Spirit, people can be changed. It is not our job, nor within our power or ability to change people. That is God. And the anger that we feel towards people when we are done injustice is because our pride has been struck. Throw that to the trash. It is garbage. So our job is to extend grace. Our job is to allow the relationship to remain so that the Holy Spirit can lay down conviction and not allow bitterness and anger to grow out of it.